Well, let's turn now to John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. And really continuing a message here, or, or, or uh, continuing a passage um, of this same series of events over a period of maybe about 12 hours on the last night and then the last morning of the life of Jesus. But I want to speak this morning about the guilt and shame of Christ's crucifixion. Let's look in John 19, beginning at verse 1. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand just in honor of the reading of the Word of God and out of reverence to Him and attentiveness to His voice. Listen to the Word of the Lord. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. They came up to Him saying, Hail! King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone of Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now, as always, for your word, for its truth, its relevance to us, its life, and its power. And we open it with the conviction that you have something to say to us in it and that you will cause it to be living and powerful to us as we open our hearts to it. And so we do now open our hearts and our ears and pray you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. God, move me out of the way 
and use my voice as your instrument today. For Christ's sake, amen. And you may be seated. Well, we are familiar with the typical American courtroom scene, at least as it's portrayed on television, maybe especially as it's portrayed on television. Maybe you've seen documentaries, maybe some of us have seen it uh, firsthand, either from uh, where the jury sits, or maybe from you've seen it from elsewhere in the courtroom. But it's that scene when the verdict is read and, it's, and, and it says, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty or not guilty as the case may be. But they never say, we find the defendant ashamed. They pronounce guilt or lack of guilt but not shame. I say that just because the concepts of guilt and shame are related, but different, and, and really often confused even in the way in modern uh, culture, even the way either of those is talked about. We're interested particularly in how they're talked about and portrayed in a biblical context, but they are related. But guilt pertains to the violation of some standard and we're most interested in the violation of God's standard, or we're most, we're most interested in guilt as it pertains to the violation of God's standard. But it pertains to the, the actual, factual violation of some standard, uh, moral, legal, ethical, or, or, or so on. Shame really pertains to an unworthiness in relation to other people. Or a sense of unworthiness in relation to uh, other people. And it warrants, that unworthiness warrants in the minds of other people, public dishonor. We've talked before about the fact that we don't, we don't live in an honor-shame culture, most of us. And most of us don't come out of that background even. So this is maybe a little less familiar to us. Although cancel culture today is making it more familiar to us. That uh, the internet, you know, has become an honor-shame culture of sorts by itself. But, but in, in those kinds of cultures, guilt, the violation of some standard that that community values may lead to the consequence of being put to shame, a public dishonor. In other words, the two of those in some cultures go very much hand in hand, even though they are still very different. But, but shame pertains to that uh, sort of unworthiness of acceptance by the community who holds that person in dishonor, at least temporarily. Most of us have experienced shame uh, probably all of us have experienced shame because we've done things that we were guilty of. So in other words, most of us have experienced sh um, shame because of we're guilty of some offense, because of something we have done. Some, though, have experienced shame because of things done to them. And this actually touches... Uh, 
a sensitive area in the lives of people who have experienced that. Um, and, and something that is a, a deep uh, wound in the, in the hearts of people who have experienced that. But who live with a sense of shame, not because of anything they've done, but because of things done to them. We might think, for example, of cases of abuse, whether physical, emotional, sexual abuse. You might even think of cases of rape, where the, where the person did absolutely nothing wrong and somebody else did something awfully, unspeakably wrong toward them, but they're the ones left living with shame. That is, that's, that's almost inexplicable why that is. In fact, people many times in those situations could, could articulate the fact that there's no good reason, it's not rational for them to feel that way, and yet they do feel that way. That, 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 that shame, the, a real experience of shame has been inflicted upon them because of what somebody else did. Shame undermines, whether because of something we did or what somebody else did, shame undermines our feelings of acceptance or belonging to people. In the sense that even if we're the ones at fault in some way, uh, shame for however long it lasts distances us from the people who have been offended by are wrong. And again, in some cultures, there's real actual shunning, right? Sending, putting people out of the family, out of the community, and things like that. But it undercuts our feelings of acceptance and belonging. Acceptance by the people who matter most to us. Acceptance by the people uh, who we need most to accept us. Shame creates distance, in other words. It creates isolation. And it also, again, in some cases, can undermine our sense of self-worth. And again, in, in, in maybe the worst of those cases where it's completely a violation against that person, at no fault of themselves. It goes to the very core of their personhood. That is, uh, somebody has done something to them that has treated them in a way that is almost dehumanizing. Treated them like, treated them like they're less than a person and, and, and the shame uh, cuts deep and leaves scars there that people live with for years. Well, I start there this morning because I, my interest today in looking at this passage is, is particularly to meditate on the fact that Jesus bore our shame when he went to the cross. Next week, we're actually going to the cross in the text. But here we see... In, the, in this process of him being delivered over to be crucified. His was one of those situations in which somebody else is guilty. 
But all the shame is put on him. And he bore it all. He knew it was coming. And he despised it all. Hebrews chapter 2 says. Because on the cross, he would reverse the curse of both guilt and shame. And so I want to look at this passage with those uh, two words in mind this morning. The guilt and shame. And I'm going to begin with the guilt, although that's really, I would say, mostly verses 6 through 16 deal more with uh, the subject of guilt. And I, I, I wanted to touch this one more briefly simply because, again, the last two weeks, the last two passages that I've preached from really kind of draw out recurring themes. And that is things like the, the utter hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. I mean, we could have another sermon on that. It's staggering, this one here today, the, the, the ways in which they are just so terribly hypocritical. But I've, I've touched that twice already, so you can listen to one of those sermons again if you want to hear it, but it's not hard to find here in this, in this passage. Their hypocrisy, their manipulation of Pilate and, and the law and the court proceedings and all of that that they do for the purpose of putting Jesus to death. That is their aim, to see him die. They think they know the way uh, that, that that ought to go, the best way to make that happen. But that's their goal and they lie and manipulate in order to make it happen. And so again, we, we've, we've visited all of those themes in the last couple of weeks, but I just wanted to brush against them again just to point out that the Jewish leaders were guilty. Really what we're going to see here is everybody but Jesus was guilty. That's really the bottom line. But the Jewish leaders were guilty of, for reasons I just mentioned. Um, all The illegal trial, the false accusations, bearing false witness, the hypocrisy and all that. They're guilty. And Jesus says, in fact, in verse 11 right here, theirs is the greater sin. Theirs is the greater sin. And I would just mention as sort of a footnote there um, that, among other things, part of what that tells us is that there are degrees of sin. And there are degrees of punishment for sin. We're so used to saying all sin is equal, and it is not. All sin subjects us to the judgment of God for sure, but some sins are more heinous than others and even worthy of greater judgment. And Jesus says so right out of his mouth right here. The Jews are, are guilty here of a greater sin. The other implication of that too, though, is that Pilate is also guilty. The Jewish leaders are guilty, but Pilate was guilty. He was not exonerated. And, and really, the scriptures pretty consistently will point out here that, that Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus. John seems to really hammer that point. He says it, Pilate says it over and over and over again, that he finds no guilt in Jesus. But God did find guilt in Pilate. He is not exonerated simply because he said, I do not find any guilt. Because he condemned him when he had the authority to acquit. That might be uh, an interesting little um, exploration, a sort of a side study itself, or at least for us to ponder. 
The guilt that comes from knowing what is right and just to do, but refusing to do it. That's really what Pilate is most guilty of. He condemned Jesus when he had the authority to acquit. And Mark 15, verse 15, in recording this same chain of events, says that the reason Pilate did that, the reason he released Barabbas and delivered Jesus over to be crucified, was because he wished to satisfy the crowd. That would preach a good sermon today, wouldn't it? The desire to satisfy the crowd rather than the desire to do what is right. And it was in his hands to do it, and he did not do it. And he was guilty. And listen, Pilate's responsibility in the death of Jesus. This is an interesting little uh, note, I guess. But his responsibility is forever memorialized in the Apostles' Creed. When we're confessing who Jesus is, one of the things we say was, is he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Not that he suffered at the instigation of the Jewish leaders. Not that he suffered under the abusive treatment of the Roman soldiers. Not that he suffered because of the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. He suffered under Pontius Pilate because he was the one person who had the authority to decide that he would go free and he didn't. Pilate was guilty. The Jewish leaders were guilty. The crowd was guilty. Uh, it, it was the crowd. We don't get as, it, as much emphasis on that here um, and, it, and it's maybe not as explicitly stated or clear reading through um, this section, but it was the crowd that called for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. Again, if you read other gospel accounts, that's, that's a little bit more explicit. But the crowd, it is, it is not just leaders who made this decision. The crowd, the mob, the masses said, crucify him. And that's the people we need to identify with. The general population here. The crowd was sort of our representatives, if you will, in this particular scene. Jesus went voluntarily voluntarily to the cross, and he did so for the sins of all those who would believe in him from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they're represented by the mob that said, crucify him. He'll die for the sins of man, even though it was man who called for his death. So everyone here except Jesus is guilty. But Jesus bore the penalty for it when he went to the cross. And part of what we might just think about here is that, again, what's part of what's being depicted is that you have the institution of religion that condemned him and is guilty at his death, the institution of government, and then just the general population. There's guilt on all parts. His forgiveness will redeem uh, religion, as it were. Government, which will be on his shoulders, and redeem 
all of those of mankind who, who believe in him. Everyone's guilty, though, except Jesus. He bore the penalty and he bore the shame. And so let's consider that now. Because really the first five verses here, the actions on the part of the soldiers, were all about putting Jesus to shame. There's no guilt in him, but all the shame was put on him. And so as you look there in, in verses 1 through 5, you see one, one detail after another is really only for that purpose. That they twisted a crown, a crown of thorns and put it on his head. There's different uh, research that's been done on these uh, thorns and maybe people who have been to the Middle East and seen um, examples of, of ones that grow there now. Again, it's it's hard to be um, absolute in, in uh, stating what kinds of thorns they were, but, they, but there are thorns that just grow many inches long. And I've seen reference to even one uh, tree, I suppose, that grows thorns that are 10 to 14 inches long. But we're not talking about a rose bush here, which would make me cry right by itself. But, you know, ones that are six, eight, ten inches long, twisted together and then shoved down on your head was not only brutal and painful, but dehumanizing. Do you see? Not only is he not deserving of the shame, but the way they are uh, putting it on him is just dehumanizing. Treating him like he is less than human. So they twist a crown of thorns. They put uh, a purple robe on him. Not because they're honoring him. Because they mock, they're mocking him as... He, he says he's a king. Look at this pitiful sight. A king like this. Is this the best you can do? Put a purple robe on him. Call out, hail king of the Jews. They struck him with their hands. Dragged him out then into public. And then again in Mark. And uh, some of these uh, details are also in, in Matthew. But it says explicitly they mocked him. They spit on him. They knelt down and gave homage to him. And not for real. But mocking him. Jesus had done nothing wrong. The shame to which he was subjected was totally unearned and totally undeserved. But the whole process of being crucified, this was just leading up to the cross and, and the cross itself would also be humiliating. That was by design. It was intended to humiliate people who were subjected to that execution. And it's humiliating largely because it was so dehumanizing. And this would be, again, another, an, another good takeaway for just us to reflect on because it's probably something we don't think about very often. Why is shame so painful? 
Why, why is shame just the awful thing that it is? And one of the reasons is because there is something dehumanizing. Particularly in some of the, again, the worst, most egregious cases of the way it's been inflicted against people. And it was toward Jesus. You see the scene here. Mocked, spit upon, hit, ridiculed, publicly shamed. In fact, Jesus had said in, in prophesying this scene, he said in Luke chapter 18, he would be mocked and shamefully treated. Publicly dishonored in this way. But Hebrews 12 too, I referenced it earlier, says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. By implication, he despised the pain too, and the pain would, would have been unimaginable. Just absolutely unimaginable. But what seems to get featured so significantly in a way, and in a way that I think we miss a lot of the times is the shame of it all. But he despised the shame for the joy set before him. I wanted to belabor that point a little bit. Again, sort of meditate on that point. Because, of, because shame is, in a very real way, distinct from guilt. We think very often, we, we're more of a guilt and innocence culture anyway, but we think even about our sin as a matter of our guilt before God and uh, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, paying that penalty and making us, in a sense, innocent before God. And so we're really conscious, cognizant of uh, the guilt and the removal of guilt. But I think we don't think as much about the shame that he bore and that he reversed the curse of shame on the cross as well as the curse as the curse of the the guilt of sin, or perhaps we would say that shame was part of the curse of sin. But either way, he rolled it all back, all that, uh, all that fell about humanity and the created order in the garden at that first sin, all that fell, he rolled back and made right again, including shame. And sometimes uh, the feeling of scorn that people carry with them when they, when they live with a lot of shame. Um, it, it, it sends people into hiding. This is one of the sinister things about shame. It sends people into hiding. Again, in some cases where literally people stay in their house. I, I, I shared a story in a sermon maybe about a year and a half ago. I, I know you don't keep those uh, archived 
you know, quite that readily in your head. But I shared a story about a woman who was, again, sort of publicly shamed on the internet for a stupid thing she did, for sure. She acknowledged it was stupid. She ended up staying in her house for like a year and a half because she, she couldn't go out without being absolutely mocked and, and scorned. It sends people into hiding, sometimes literally staying in their house, other times avoiding people, certain people or places. They feel ashamed in relationship to certain people, and so they avoid them. Or they don't go certain places because they know the people they might see at those places for the same reason. Some people go into hiding in the sense I sort of alluded to in my prayer But they've done things that they've never told anyone else. Maybe even had a hard time even acknowledging to God. But 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 they've they've gone into hiding in a in a in a different sense. That they've they've hidden that inside of themselves, too ashamed to even utter it. And and for some it may be helpful. It may be inspiration to look at Jesus' example that for the joy set before him, he despised the shame. And that is actually instructive in the sense that some people who who really need to be set free from the bondage of shame that they've lived with uh, need to despise the shame itself of even speaking about that. That that actually keeps people bound up by hiding that in the darkness. But it makes me think about the fact that when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, you may remember the story. They, They became aware of their nakedness. So they covered themselves. Ashamed of something they never knew they should be ashamed of before. They covered themselves and then when God approached them, it says they hid themselves from him. The very first sin, guilty they certainly were of a violation against God's standard. But the shame that they immediately felt sent them into hiding from God, and there's that separation, not only because of the penalty of their sin, but just their own shame that by their own volition they separated themselves from God. And what we need to be encouraged by is that on the cross, Jesus reversed the curse of sin, that he, he rolled back all that was lost because of sin, including. Uh, that very entry of shame into our reality. And it points us to that reality even now that those who really have carried an undue burden of shame for too long can find real deliverance from it in Jesus because of who he is and what he has done because of what he by choice bore himself despised 
for the joy set before him and the good that that did toward us. And for me, that all just shines a brighter light on Isaiah 53. This prophecy about the suffering servant, the Messiah, we talk about so often, particularly in the Easter season. But drawing out the significance of the shame that he bore, not just guilt and its penalty. It says in Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That is shame. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Of course, it goes on to say what John will go on to say. That by his stripes we were healed. There's an unfolding story here and he's going to the cross momentarily. But he was despised and rejected he bore our griefs, was esteemed not by everybody. He's been abandoned by everybody at this moment. And yet, for our sake and for the joy set before him, he despised all of that and endured the cross. Jesus knows better than anyone what it's like to be put to shame for something that was done to him. He knows better than anybody what that experience is like. But, but, but because he bore our shame and went and took it to the cross, he reversed its curse. And that ought to just draw us into uh, just a great thanksgiving to him for that. That is part of what has been secured for us through his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you. Lord, we thank you. We know in a tiny way the different kind of pain that shame is to endure. We thank you for enduring it for our sake, even inflicted upon you by our own sin. Thank you, Lord. And God, I do pray that this morning for those who have carried inside of themselves a heavy, deeply embedded shame that has just become an unwanted companion in their lives, and one they just assume will always be there 
that they can't get rid of. God, I pray that you would show them otherwise today. And that perhaps by a fresh, new, and powerful encounter with the risen Savior, that they'd be set free from the bondage of that shame. Lord, we praise you and thank you now and pray that you would move us as you want us to be moved. In Christ's name, amen.